Welcome to the JM Power Podcast Experience. Listening to the Staff Room Podcast with Che and Pav. We talk casually yet poignantly about the most relevant topics in teaching today. So come on and chat with us because we love to engage in great conversation. Welcome to the sixth episode of the summer series for the Saffron Podcast. Today we are featuring Tom Shimmer, educational author, keynote speaker, and consultant from Surrey, BC, Canada. We talked to Tom primarily about assessment in this episode and how assessment practices have evolved over the years within education. My name is Pav Wander, and I'm only half of this dynamic duo that hosts the Staff Room Podcast. I have a co-host. Yes, indeed I do. But I do not introduce him. He usually introduces himself. Because it's hot town, summer in the city, and we got Tom Shimmer, so it's going to be hot. It's going to be hot, hot. It, this is a, uh, and my name's Che. Hi, Che. How are you, Pav? I'm great. How are you? Good. And you know what? It's wrapping up the summer, so I think this is a perfect time to uh, drop this conversation with Tom Shimmer about assessment, evaluation, mm-hmm. philosophies, methodologies, grading, uh, stigmas around trying to adapt certain methodologies that maybe aren't entirely substantiated by data and mm-hmm. analysis. Mm-hmm. And this was just a really great conversation uh, for that reason. Yes. Um, we're sort of new to, to getting to know Tom before we had him on a podcast, a little bit of interaction here or there. But he's been very supportive of our work and our sort of our work behind the scenes. Extremely supportive. Uh, Tom is a phenomenal guy. I mean, just outside of all of the great work that he is doing, um, he's just super nice. Uh, and, and we needed some assistance with some things and he carved out some time to help us out with some stuff and, and share his insights and his journey. And, uh, it has really been helpful for us and, uh, and, and it, you know, just helped us along the journey. And so he's been, uh, a great connection for us to make and, and hopefully a great friend in the future. We, we have yet to share that Caesar at some point. Oh, but I'm having one now. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we invited Tom. <laughs> so this conversation that mm-hmm. we're about to have is, is, I would think of my teaching journey and probably say assessment evaluation, is, it wasn't one of those foundational pieces to change and modify and evolve. They were very static. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And certainly in the last four or five years, I've seen growth on that realm from me, listening more student voice, listening to more student choice, having more co-creation just opens the door to a much more natural reevaluation of how you want to assess things. Because I was caught in a silo in how I wanted to build assessments and evaluation. It was always internal thoughts, internal questions. What did I want to get out of this? What was I trying to do? And maybe early on in my career, I was more, I, I wouldn't say driven by, but it was fun to catch you on a question. You know, to show you, you didn't, you didn't quite know everything. Ah, there's no way you can get a hundred. Mm. I'll show you. And I think that's certainly evolved out. And uh, this conversation was really rich, I found, Pav, about just making sure, or not even making sure, it was rich for me to just know my assessment journey, that I've been on a, a good path the last, I would probably say, five or six years. And some of those key elements that come out was the idea of co-creation, the idea mm. of student voice. And then that leads to some of the great methodologies when you talk about you know, self-assessment, self-assessment, can be valueless if you haven't had this co-creation mindset and methodology all the way through. We can all say, well, I do self-assessment, but are they all valid? Do they mm -hmm. all have relevancy? Do right. students really connect to it? So I think a lot of those insights come out in this conversation. Yes, indeed. You're absolutely right about that. And uh, and another thing that this conversation really does is uh, discuss some buzzwords that exist in the uh, assessment realm of education nowadays, uh, primarily the the idea of going gradeless. And I enjoyed this conversation for that reason, because um, it demystifies the, the idea of going gradeless. And it kind of breaks down what that means and what that looks like. And the fact that uh, sometimes, you know, it's not a bad idea to have grades. And so it really gave me, like you, a really good opportunity to reflect on my own practice and, and think about what are some of the things that I'm doing and, uh, and, and are they effective and some of the ways to perhaps change up those things uh, so that I am better serving my students. So uh, I, I really enjoyed this conversation and I, and I really enjoyed uh, getting to know Tom a little bit better because uh, the work that he is doing is very impactful and um, he's a very easy person to learn from, I think. Knowledgeable? Yes. Uh, highly well spoken, mm -hmm. and so you you're not left with a lot of questions. Although you could question is a good methodology, of but you're not left with a lot of questions in regards to clarity, in regards to where he's drawing information. It was really really helpful conversation, and I like you brought that up, Pav. In the area of assessment or evaluation, do we overemphasize certain terminologies or certain tasks, and thus um, not spend as much time worrying about? other components of assessment and evaluation and the going gray list it, it can be it can stigmatize you a little bit or it can make you feel inferior in regards to what you're doing because you think i'm nowhere near going gray list but i feel like i'm on a great journey on assessments i feel mm -hmm. like my class is rich mm -hmm. with feedback assessments co-creation and i think uh, the conversation here for me just said going gradeless has a, as a space has a place, but do I over, do I put it so higher up on the hierarchy of great assessments that everything else is somehow not at the same level? And I think the conversation with Tom really reminds you that assessment is a personalized journey. It's a one to one ratio. Mm -hmm. How are we collectively going to work? Uh, to build assessments that really propel your learning and propel your growth. And if your learning and your growth is propelled through whatever sort of activities and tasks we've co-created together, then does it matter, and this is where you work, or does it matter what it was if it's co-created? And Pav, you've brought up this a few times. 
when you've talked about deviating away from tests or assignment, you also realize there's some students that maybe they've been conditioned to that, but perhaps it's also the way that they really feel comfortable mm -hmm. to display their learning. Yeah, absolutely. Which is why differentiation is, is essentially key with assessment as well. We focus a lot on differentiation with the tasks when it comes to the learning, um, but when it comes to the assessment, it's just as important. And I think that uh, Tom does a great job of highlighting that and so much more in this episode. Uh, and I think that it's a great idea for us to jump into it because I don't want to start giving things away. There's there's so much richness in this conversation. I can solve this. Yeah. I take it all back. Take it all back. There you go. All right. Rewind. Let's, oh, I can do that. See? They didn't hear any of that. Exactly. All right, Pav. I think it's time <laughs> to jump into our summer series with Tom Shimmer. Welcome to the Staff Room Podcast. My name is Pav Wander, and I'm here with my co-host, Che Cheney, and you're listening to an episode from our summer series. We're speaking to some incredible educators that we've met along our educational podcasting journey over the last two years, and we're very happy to amplify their voices and stories and highlight the important work that they are doing in education. Today, we are speaking to Tom Shimmer, educational author, keynote speaker, and consultant from Surrey, British Columbia, Canada. And with him, we will be talking about the evolution of assessment practices in education. We are looking forward to this conversation, so let's get right into it. Welcome, Tom. It's so nice to speak with you again. Yeah, it's great to be here. Uh, thanks for the invitation. Looking forward to our conversation today. All right, Tom, welcome to the staff room. You know what? We're excited to have you here because we know that we are going to learn an infinite amount of information about assessment. And this is one of the reasons we reached out to you is you're such a, uh, a wise, informed practitioner when it comes to assessment that we just wanted this opportunity. But secondary, um, this is really your audition uh, to take my place uh, for when I retire from the Staff Room Podcast or I get voted off of this island and Pav needs a new host. Um, looking forward to hearing about your journey in assessment. Um, I have questions to ask, but I'm very random in my thoughts, so they'll likely be all over the place. And if you can decipher where you heard a question and you want to dive in an answer, we would love that. Uh, and then it validates my questioning techniques. But to get us started, give us a little insights on who you are, wh what you do, what's been your inspiration, what keeps you fired up in education, and specifically, <laughs> assessment. <laughs> I'm sensing a theme here. I will try to be succinct as we go along. Um, this, this uh, just finishing my 30th year in education, I started teaching in 1991. And just, f you know, for me, I'm, I'm a practitioner. I have always been a practitioner. Uh, I've approached the work as a practitioner and, and through the lens of a teacher. I spent seven years as a classroom teacher, 11 years as a school-based administrator, and then two years working in a district-level position. And that was 20 years, my first 20 years in the school system, working primarily at the middle school and high school level. Uh, and then my work with the district level for two years was working with the 19 schools in our school division. And in 2011, my first book was published. I resigned from my district position and decided to embark on this career as an author, a speaker, and a consultant, and have just finished my 10th year of doing that full-time. And uh, you know, things are continuing to go along as they are. So uh, that's the span and the scope of my career. And, and certainly uh, I've been through a lot of changes. I've seen a lot uh, happen in education over the last 30 years. And uh, much of it has a lot to do with assessment. And certainly I was, I've been a part of that 
uh, for the better half of my career. So uh, it's been a really great ride so far. That's incredible, uh, Tom, that you've, ha- you've had so much experience within education even before you started this journey itself. And so uh, we know that you have a great wealth to pull from, and we could have spoken to you about any, any number of things within <laughs> education. Uh, we zeroed in a little bit on uh, assessment because, uh, because we have seen so much of this uh, coming from you on social media recently. Mm-hmm. Your books have been incredible to, to kind of follow the journey and and learn from you as well. And this is an area that I think that Che and myself and so many educators want to sort of refine their practice with. And so we're wondering um, to sort of get into this conversation, um, how did you arrive at exploring this passion of ed- of assessment within education? And uh, what have you learned about assessment practices through this process, through this journey? It began uh, with a moment of frustration 17 years ago. Uh, when I started teaching, I was a very traditional high school history teacher. You you could think of the, the stereotypical high school history teacher. Um, multiple choice was my passion back then. Nobody loved Scantron sheets more than me. Um, I could penalize kids, put zeros on work. I can do all of that stuff. I, I was as traditional as they come for especially the first six years. And I divide my career into three phases. <clears throat> the first six years of my career, I was a very traditional, very sort of hardcore, you know, tough grading, that that whole sort of stereotype. In the spring of 1997, what changed for me was the fact that my first child was born, my daughter was born. And so what happened to me immediately, and again, I want to be clear, you, you don't have to be a parent to be a great educator, but I needed to be a parent to become a good one. And what happened to me was I almost instantly started looking at everything I did in my classroom through the lens of what if that was my daughter? I would say things to students and then I'd have this moment of, I, what if my daughter's teacher said that? And she was just an infant. But the problem was I didn't know what to do differently. So I was in this, what I call now my assessment purgatory, where I knew I, knew I didn't want to do what I was doing, but I didn't know what to do instead. And I spent about the next seven years in that sort of assessment world where I, I was sort of in, in this in limbo, if you will. And then it was the 2003-2004 school year when I moved into a middle school. I was an assistant principal in that middle school, and I taught 50% of the day. So I was teaching a three out of six periods that, that year. And I finally reached a point where I'd become very frustrated with myself as a teacher because I'm 13 years into my career, and yet I'm still not reaching certain students. And so that's when I began to explore what was happening in our, in our industry, what's happening in education. Now, my timing was perfect. Because the 1990s was, that's when we saw the movement toward curricular outcomes. In the United States, they call it standards. And in in Canada, we call it the outcomes-based movement. That was a 90s phenomenon. When I started teaching, I didn't have outcomes. What I had was a curriculum guide that told me as a teacher what to cover, but not what the students were supposed to learn. That transition happens in the 1990s. And so on the at, toward the end of the 90s and the early 2000s, you have this renaissance in assessment practices because of a lot of the research that was coming out about how we prepare students to meet standards. And of course, 1998, we have Paul Black and Dylan Williams' article inside the black box and their peer-reviewed research, the meta-analysis. It all kind of came together for this perfect storm. So you can see that by 2000, by the spring or the fall, I should say, of 2003, spring of 04, my timing for what was going on in education, I happened to come into this raging river of assessment practices. And so 17 years ago, I began to change and transform my classroom and haven't looked back ever since. 
Oh, Tom, you bring it's such an interesting story, and it's I love how assessment is is became it's sort of embedded in the teaching and the lessons and the creations and, and this journey. Uh, sometimes I think of my earlier journey as a teacher, where I sort of assessments were the secondary thought, and it was like, oh, how am I going to assess this? How am I going to get mm-hmm. feedback? Um, it reminds me a little bit, actually, as I'm thinking about some of the stresses, you know, my students and my teaching guide how I want to move forward. But a lot of insights come from my own children, especially as they age, because I see how they interact with their schooling and I see the social dynamic and I see the, the projects. But ultimately, with my oldest daughter, the 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 anxiety about marks um, and whether she's going to get it or not probably is what I see the uh causes the most stress and that's been a great eye-opener for me as a teacher to realize you can have the greatest lesson in the world but if then if you trivialize it maybe or if you standardize it maybe and make it make the task now completely dependent on this performative evaluation do you spoil all the great learning that's gone on uh, which makes reminds us our feedback is part of that lesson has to be uh, thought about throughout which sort of leads me to my first question, you know, what? Um, when we think about feedback and assessment, what are some common misconceptions that teachers may bring to it? I think of my own misconceptions of how I just thought about it after the fact or just tried to, to use it at the end to gain some information. Maybe I'd alienated a bunch of students through how I had misused it earlier on. And I don't even want to, you know, write a blank check and say I don't misuse it now because I'm, I'm looking forward to learning more to continue to improve. But those are some of my insights, and we'd love to hear some of your insights on, on the misconceptions misconceptions of assessment and feedback. Yeah. You know, there there are two major misconceptions that I think, and the first speaks to what you were just talking about a moment ago, which is the fact that, and, and your daughter's experience, is I think that too often uh, educators look at assessment as a clinical exercise in number crunching. And what we have to recognize about assessment is a deeply emotional human experience. Every student will have an emotional reaction to the prospect of being assessed. That, that's unquestioned. The only question is whether or not that reaction is productive, whether they look at assessment as an opportunity, and whether they see that as a way of taking inventory on where I am in my learning, or whether that reaction is negative and then they emotionally sh- uh, shut down. Monique Bocart writes a lot about this in her research about how students are constantly assessing both the cognitive and the emotional demands of any task in front of them, and they will choose one of two pathways. One is the growth pathway. The other is the well-being pathway. And when you choose the well-being pathway, you withdraw, and you try to protect yourself from feelings of incompetence, and you try to protect yourself, and that's when students start to dismiss things. They start to say, it doesn't matter. I don't care what homework. I didn't know we had a test today. I didn't know we had a project due. That's a defense mechanism because they recognize that to, to try and fail is going to be more socially damaging to them than than the idea of 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 just dismissing it because I gain a lot of social mileage in class amongst my peers by being cool. So the first one is understanding that that assessment can not just focus on achievement, but you can through assessment build hope and efficacy in our students. Hope is about expectation, right? So when you have hope, you expect that success is is in front of you. I, I sort of talk about hope as the light at the end of the tunnel, right? I can see it. Now, efficacy is the belief that I can get there. 
And so my colleagues and I often talk about the idea that through our assessment practices, we can build hope, efficacy, and achievement. So it's never losing sight of that emotional aspect. Now, the second big one that I see in terms of misconceptions is the idea that there are that there is a, a, a silver bullet or there is a magic answer. There is absolutely nothing definitive in assessment. Everything in assessment is context dependent and nuanced. And the way that assessment gets talked about, uh, especially on social media, and especially when it comes to feedback, it gets talked about in such definitive terms that does not align with what the research says. The, the classic example of that that I often cite is when people talk about the impact that grades and scores have on, on learning. And that causal relationship has never been established in the research. But the, but the way people talk about it is give a student a grade and the learning stops. But that's just not true. That is a a correlation. And there's definitely trends that say it's favorable to give feedback in absence of grades and scores because students can then focus on the feedback. But this, the definitiveness with which people talk about it is, is an exaggeration. You know, we sit here in 2021 and there is absolutely no answer to the question of what absolutely works in feedback. There's kind of this cognitive tension, right? There's on the one hand, we know feedback gets almost unanimous uh, support in the academic literature to raise it. That's how you raise achievement. You increase learning through feedback, but we don't know. There is no strategy that you can point to because everything is so context dependent and nuanced that the most important thing a teacher can do is watch how their students respond to the feedback. So um, Avram Kluger and Angelo Denisi published a great study back in 1996 that really shifted our focus. And the, the shift in focus was stop looking for the, the perfect strategy and start watching how your students respond to your feedback. Because in order for feedback to be called productive, it must trigger a productive response from the recipient. So a couple of examples. If we engage in formative assessment work and I provide you feedback, but then I also tell you what level you are, or what your score is, or, or whatever grading system someone might have, if that student takes your sees the score, sees the feedback, takes that feedback and tries to advance their learning, then there's no problem. There's no issue. It's not you know, it's not a causal relationship. But if the student ignores your feedback and says, "Ah, I'm good with the 3 or I'm good with the I'm good with the B," you know, and ignores your feedback, now you have a problem. So what Kluger and Denisi shared in terms of their meta-analysis was Watching how students respond, there really are only two productive responses students can have to feedback. If the feedback shows I've met the goal, then I increase my aspirations. Every other reaction is negative. If the feedback shows that I haven't met the goal, then I increase my effort toward reaching the goal. Those are the only two productive responses students can have. So whenever you use feedback, the most pivotal moment is watch how the students respond. Anyway, I, I know that was a bit long-winded, but uh, that that's ultimately one of the biggest misunderstandings because that causal relationship between grades and learning, it's a correlation, it's a trend, we do see it, but at the same time, it's not, it's not definitive. Uh, Tom, I have to say that I actually forgot that we were recording an episode here and I just kind of got lost in that, uh, that teaching that I just had. And I, <laughs> I took so many notes here that I don't even know where to, where to begin to, to sort of highlight those takeaways. That was, that was an incredible learning moment. And I know that in listening back to this episode, I'm going to, um, take away even more, but 
but I really appreciate that you highlighted first that that aspect of the emotional intelligence, that this is something, the, the growth and the well-being, that these two things, that they're so important to where a student will take this uh, learning and the assessment that you're providing, the feedback that you're providing for them. And then um, the highlighting of the po the point that there that this is a correlation and not necessarily causation and and that we have seen this so much on social media where people just want that that hard set definitive answer they just yeah. want um this is what i want to go with like this i need the yeah. easy answer i need to implement this into my programming right away and i need something to work like that with the snap of the fingers and it just doesn't work like that it is as you as you said very nuanced and contextual and so mm -hmm. those are some really um, great points that you made there and, and um, love all of the additional learning. We would love to maybe link some of those articles that you've um, the, and the studies sure. that you have mentioned in the show notes, because uh, I think that that will provide some great um, further learning as well. Um, mm -hmm. and, it, and it actually takes me to the next question, which is thinking about the global aspect to assessment and feedback. And we know that you travel the world um, yeah. talking to educators around around the globe about assessment practices. And I'm wondering if you've noticed any any similarities or major differences that have made you reflect on on these practices and or or grown or evolve the the learning that you have doing over the years that you have done over yeah. the years to sort of advance uh, what you know about assessment practices. Well, certainly that that breadth of experience for me has has led me to some great places. Just for clarification for for your listeners, uh, when I when I work overseas, I'm working mostly with American schools. Mm -hmm. uh, I work with American schools, Canadian schools. It's usually an American school or a British school or a sort of combination uh, of of that. And and usually those are expats whose parents are are working either for the embassy. Uh, they're working in the oil industry or they're working in some in tech industries that are you know. So when I work in in Abu Dhabi, for example, there's a, there's a, a huge contingent of students. They're from all over the world. There's you know 65 or 70 cultures that are represented in the schools, but they follow the American curriculum because those students are headed to an American university or a Canadian university. They're they're looking at that track. What I would what I would say is that the the differences in the overseas schools that I work with are often they're they're amplified. So. What I find overseas is that you, if you are a very progressive kind of forward-leaning teacher, that gets magnified in a kind of performance-based, inquiry-based, project-based learning environment that in an overseas school, there just seems to be more of a willingness to engage in that kind of messiness. Now, in fairness um, to a, say, North American public school, this is a very atypical clientele. Uh, you know, you're, you're talking about parents who have high education. You're Again, the, the American Embassy School, for example, that I work with in New Delhi is right across the street from the American Embassy. And the, the students of that school, many of their parents work in the embassy. So they're, they're highly educated. They're professionals. They come from a, a very finite uh, clientele and their class sizes are quite small. So you're talking about classes of 15 to 20. So there are those opportunities for them. But it's the mindset around the willingness to get messy with project-based learning and to think about performance criteria to, to take that long-term. However, you can also get magnified in the other way. If you're a very traditional teacher, then you can be very entrenched because, because of your clientele, you, the, the students will often work around you. 
and they'll work around some of the antiquated practices and they're very self-directed and they're just very hungry to go to not just university. They want to go to McGill. They want to go to Queens. They want to go to Harvard. They want to go to, you know, the MIT, these, these students, and, and they have real opportunities for that. So it's almost as if the more traditional you are, that gets magnified overseas and, and it becomes very difficult to break habits because the students perform so well. So sometimes we have to ask the tough question is, are your students succeeding because of you or are they succeeding in spite of you? Because these students are in the they're, you know, they're in AP or they're in IB and they're really sort of motivated. And on the other hand, you see some really progressive practices. You see it a lot with schools that have the IB program because the PYP, the primary program and the middle years program are very inquiry based and very project based. And that builds a habit in the school. But I think the willingness to engage in some of that messiness and, and, and ex- exploring beyond what is your typical sort of learning experience, I think is something that um, a lot of North American schools do. But I think we could just take more risks with that with some of our vulnerable learners and and stop thinking to ourselves, you know, our, what, but our kids can't do that. I mean, that's one of the worst phrases any educator could ever say about their students is, oh, but you don't understand, Tom, my kids can't do that. That that Because if you say that, then they won't. Mm-hmm. You've already decided for them. Tom, that's brilliant. Um, can you repeat it all again? Because I'm not keeping up with all my notes. And as you're, as you're giving all this information, I, I, I'm, I'm writing down notes as fast as I can. And then I got to remind myself, we're actually recording this. It's actually a podcast episode. Jay, you can actually go back and re-listen to this. And, I, and I'm panicking. I didn't get that. I didn't get that. I didn't get that. Uh, Tom, this has been such a great conversation. I think because... Um, I think of Pav and I's journey, and I can't con- entirely speak for Pav, but you know we talk a lot, so we talk a lot about improving our assessments. We've been doing a lot of work in math and social-emotional learning in math, and one of the components is how are you going to assess math? And if you, at the end, you, you bring something always back to a test or a quiz, do you sort of lose the validity of trying to differentiate your assessments or your feedback through, say, math talks or math conversations. And, and so we've really been intentional on in trying to maximize our proficiency with assessment pieces and then validate our commitment to different styles of assessment by making sure that at the end we don't you know, undercut it by then deviating back to a very traditional uh, means of measurement. And then it, it leads to sort of a pavanized growth is like, where do you find information? You can get information everywhere and you get little snippets here. And one thing that's caught our attention is this, this movement to going gradeless. And it's like, it's like the new sexy. And you feel like you want to dive into it and it becomes a little intimidating. But more so than the intimidation almost becomes like the stigma, the pressure to have to be able to say, I'm going gradeless. Like all of a sudden there's like a hierarchy of how you're going to assess. And as a teacher, I found it that as much as I'm really pleased with my growth, I feel like there has to be more growth. Sometimes I feel like I can't be doing it right because I wouldn't know how I would articulate or justify having gone gradeless. Um, And so this is something where do I want to ascend to? Do I need to ascend to? Am I really pleased with my massive differentiation of assessment where I clearly see how my feedback's landing on students, I'm getting growth, and if I see that growth, do all of a sudden, do I, do I need to commit to going gradeless? So I'd love to know a little bit of your insights on that, the going gradeless phenomenon, not because I'm inherently against it, but if, you know, if I'm being open with where I am, my assessment is growing, I pay attention to the going gradeless, but I wouldn't be able to say, oh, I've gone gradeless, but maybe I want to say it. 
hey, maybe I want the attention in social media where I say, ha, 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 I have gone gradeless. So, Tom, I would love to hear more of your insights. And then uh, if we come back and I need you to repeat yourself again so I can jot some more notes, you got to be open to that for me. All right, Tom, let us know what you got to say. Well, I, I think that, that it comes down to, you know, the pivot for me years ago was the the thinking of assessment. And I, th- I would phrase it this way. Think think of, of teaching with an assessment mindset and thinking of assessment as more a verb than a noun. We think about, you know, what action is caused as a result of, of my gathering of information. Because what happens is sometimes we, we think about assessment as a formal event, as a noun, as a thing as opposed to thinking about formative assessment, which is really about, when we think about assessment, all assessment is, is gathering information about student learning. Now, you once you have that information, you make a decision about your purpose. Why did I gather this information? If I, if I decide I'm going to prioritize feedback, then I've described the formative process. If I, if I decide that this is a moment of verification, then that's summative. So the biggest mistake we make is thinking that formative and summative have to do with when the, when the assessment occurs, how large or small the assessment is. It all, it's everything about how you use the information because labeling something formative doesn't make it so. An assessment is formative when it's used formatively. And so that leads us to to uh, providing feedback. So for me, one of the biggest changes that I noticed was to stop s- focusing on grades and scores. So when you talk about gradeless, it's not like I'm against going gradeless, but at some point you're going to have to verify that students and you're going to have to summarize that. Grades will be as meaningful or as meaningless as the adults make them. So the idea that this, that, you know, five, four or five letters of the alphabet are suddenly the cause of our demise. I think what's happening, you're, you're absolutely right about social media, because what's happened is all of this gradeless conversation stems from studies that came out in the late 1980s from Ruth Butler. And what's happened in education, if you look at the scope of it, what we're basically saying is that this research about giving feedback in absence of grades and scores comes out in the late 1980s. A whole generation of educators decided to ignore that research. And then suddenly in 2011, we discovered that, hey, maybe we should not give grades. It's, it's a ridiculous assertion that that is being put forth on social media. But we know, you, we all know that what doesn't sell on social media is nuance and content. You can't, you can't go on social media and say, well, it depends, and then expect to get lots of likes and retweets. Uh, so you want to be definitive. You want to be like, you have to be sort of extreme because that that's provocative, right? And you can be any anyone you want to be on Twitter. And I think, you know, I've seen lots of great and bad examples of that. But my point is that, you know, sometimes I'll say to people, if you get rid of grades, you're going to have to replace them with grades because at some point you're going to have to summarize, right? You're going to have to tell parents. So my expression or my phrasing that I use with people is assess because you have to grade only when you need to. Okay. So assessment is a verb. It's I teach through the lens of assessment that allows me to turn that information around and provide, you know, guidance to students on what comes next for them as learners. Even better is if I can create opportunities for them to learn that about themselves, become self-assessors. So when I work with schools and I work with teachers, I say the end game here is not you becoming an assessment expert. The reason you become an assessment expert is so you can teach the students how to do this on their own behalf. Someone has to teach them how to make a scoring inference between a rubric and the demonstration of learning. How do they look at their demonstration through feedback? You know, and how do they give themselves feedback or peer assessment and those types of exercises? They're, they develop a real agency. So the focus on formative assessment 
or formative assessment strategies is probably a, a more precise way to put that. Paired with effective feedback and minimizing the emphasis on grades. Remember, what adults give their attention to is what students and children will eventually think is important. So if all teachers ever talk about are marks, 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 grades, 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 university, college, transcripts, all that, then that's what the students are taking their cues from us. And they're going to they're, they're going to think that that's what matters. So it's the feedback piece. And the third thing I would say to people is just not every moment of feedback has to be epic. All you're trying to do is cause more learning. So if that means you highlight a passage and you say to the students, I've highlighted this, this needs addressing. I want you to look at the criteria, go back into your work. What do you think? Why do you think I highlighted this passage? You know, it's cues, questions, prompts, things that you can just turn and cause more learning, turn and cause more learning and not thinking that every time you have feedback, you have to bring your bin home and you have to turn on your lamp and put the tea on and roll up your sleeves. And here we go for four hours. Just keep turning this information into more learning, more learning, more learning. So try not to make a meal out of it. I mean, there's times where you do have to spend more time. And then there's times where you just want to turn this information around into more learning for the student. Tom, I think that the biggest um, transition piece for me was when I, when I stopped doing just that, like taking home the bin of work and saying, okay, I'm going to, because yeah. I started hating it. I started really despising that, that assessment and feedback process because, um, it was, uh, it was providing feedback only for the purpose of the summation of what, or verifying what students had done. There was no real formative process in, in all of that. And so that was for me, a huge shift. And, and, you know, I don't like to say, admit this, but it happened, um, unfortunately, a little bit later in my career than, you know, reflecting back, I mean, I wish I had done some more of this learning earlier in my career. And I know mm -hmm. that there are a lot of educators that might be listening and are thinking to themselves, yeah, I wish that that was me too. Um, but we are so grateful mm -hmm. for the fact that we're able to sort of wherever we are in our careers, begin to shift that thinking and, and beginning mm -hmm. to think of, uh, assessment as more of a verb is, is part of that process. You know, it, it's part of, yeah. you know, now just every day there's feedback involved, there's assessment involved in every day of our, of our educational, yeah. of our year, the 10 months yeah. that we are spending with our students, we're providing that, mm -hmm. that, that feedback every single day. And, and that has made it, um, a little bit more accessible for us, I think, as teachers. And so um, I really appreciate that you've been able to um, sort of narrow down, not narrow down, obviously, because it's such a huge topic um, and, and you haven't yeah. even begun to to touch the, the scratch, the surface of it, I know with us, but providing this, this sort of general overview has really allowed us to grasp a little bit of it and say that it is actually attainable. It is something that we can yeah. work towards. Um, yeah. And and I wanted to just add, just ask a little bit of a more specific question when you were talking about the sure. the self-assessment, the teaching students how to self-assess. Um, and this mm -hmm. is simply for the practitioner in me. Um, at what age do you feel like students can really be able to do that? Uh, we, we talk, uh, the assessment is, is a very big topic, a broad topic. At, at what point do you think that teachers can really teach students? how to start self-assessing? I, I honestly believe they can, they can do it at any age and it really is about the expectation. So it's about making sure that the, the cycle is a lot shorter for younger learners and, and can be a lot more expansive for older learners. But it really involves 
some core fundamentals, right? Students have to be clear ahead of time. They have to be clear on what the learning outcomes are and what the criteria is, right? Do they know what's expected of them? And do they believe they can do it? There's that hope and efficacy, right? Do do I believe I can get there? What's my expectancy or my outcome expectancy? Do I think I, do I set goals? Like all of that has to be incorporated. And then they have to be able to, they have to be taught how to look at what, whatever they're doing. And obviously for very young children, it's going to be more observational because they don't have the sort of extended written language that most of their, their language skills are oral language skills. And so we're going to just, can I observe myself and judge myself against the criteria that we've established? And, and we can co-construct that criteria with students. And then after the fact, there's an opportunity to reflect on, on, you know, level of satisfaction in terms of your output, um, attribution, you know, in terms of to what do you attribute your success and, 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 and trying to direct students to an internal causation so that they recognize that they, they are the ones that were primarily responsible for their success. You know, students often attribute external causation to their successes by saying something flippant like, oh, I'm so lucky my math teacher made an easy test. Well, that's an external source of causation, which they can't count on. You can't, you won't go into a test confident until you see the test to think whether or not your teacher made an easy test. Internal causation means that my efforts, my studying, my preparation led disproportionately to my success. Now, there's a downside to that, of course, which is that when students aren't successful and they start doing that internal causation, they start thinking, well, I'm not capable. I'm So we have to redirect them to that growth mindset when they start doing that. But I think at any age you can begin, the key is to make sure that we're not asking the students to do something that is beyond their physiological stage of development. We have to be mindful of the fact that this child is six years old and, and they're their cycle of reflection is going to be very quick as opposed to somebody who's 16 who can think about, hey, how did my week go? You know, how, do, how was my success? So I think at any age, are they clear on what's expected of them? Do they know what success looks like? Do they have clarity around the criteria? And then have you provided them with an opportunity to reflect on what they're doing in real time? And then after the fact, it's a, it's a reflection of, of not just what they learned, but that metacognitive opportunity for them to think about how they learned as a learner. And that, to me, can be done at any age. Tom, yet again, another uh, mind-blowing, reaffirming, redirecting uh, wisdom drop that just I know is going to help Pav and I curate our lessons, curate our assessments, just the, the co-creation component, embedding throughout your lessons. Uh, this is great growth and great things for me to, to hear and rehear and, and hear again so that I, I can make sure I walk into the next year really confident that I'm really on the, the right path and the right journey. So I know Pav and I absolutely uh, are thankful for you gifting us your time today to talk about assessment. Hopefully the next time we have this assessment conversation, I'm sure it'll be just as good, but perhaps, perhaps slightly more organic while we sit outside in the sun in a pub somewhere. Uh, I think Pav would attest that this is the best way to talk about assessment and feedback. And then uh, ultimately, it's justification and an understanding of why my questions don't follow any linear path into which they get there. All right, Tom, thank you so much for this. Oh, so, so grateful for the invitation and would look forward to uh, continuing this conversation down the road for sure. Absolutely. Really appreciated it. Yes. Thank you, Tom. Is there, a, is there a place where listeners can get in touch with you? Is there a good 
space for making that connection with you? Oh, well, there, there's probably too many uh, at this point. Um, certainly, uh, I have my own podcast uh, called the Tom Shimmer Podcast, and you can connect with me there. And, and why I think that's relevant to our conversation today is there's always a, an assessment component to that to that. Uh, that podcast, I, I'll you know take questions from listeners or or just questions that have come up in a lot of the trainings that I'm conducting. Uh, social media for sure. Twitter, pretty active on Twitter um, at Tom Shimmer um, Shimmer Education on Facebook uh, at Tom Shimmer Podcast on Instagram. There's way too many social media platforms to pay attention to, but uh, and certainly through email. My email address is tshimmer at live.ca and. Um, certainly if people have questions or want to connect about assessment to, to further the conversation, I'm, I'm happy to do that as well. And, um, obviously, you know, a lot of the books I've written and continue to work on, and, uh, that's a big part of my work going forward as well. We are definitely going to be including those works as well as your, your incredible podcast and, uh, and you. your contact information in our show notes. So we'll definitely uh, provide that for listeners because I'm sure that there are going to be many people after listening today who want to just sit down and have a conversation with you. So I'm sure yeah. that that is definitely something that's going to happen. Anytime. Yeah. I'm, I love talking assessment. So uh, any, anytime, anywhere, um, I'm, up, I'm up for it for sure. Perfect. Well, we truly appreciate this conversation and your time, Tom, and we thank you for talking to us as part of our summer series for the Staff Room podcast and teaching us a little bit more about assessment and feedback practices. It was a very enlightening conversation, and we know that uh, listeners are also going to be intrigued to know much more. And this marvelous episode is brought to you by our fully endorsed sponsorship from The Drive with Che and Pav on Voicehead Radio. If you like great educational banter, organic conversation tied in with musical selections, and we think The Drive is a space you will enjoy Friday mornings, 9 a.m. They paid big bucks for that uh, prime time slot. You right know, there. when they called us and said, hey, we'll sponsor this episode, I'm like, are you, are you guys sure? And like, this is going to cost you. It's going to cost you a lot. We better set up a Zoom so the four of us can talk. <laughs> and they paid up. No, no, no. We're really excited for this. Like, good, good. I like this partnership. <laughs> the Staff Room Podcast is collaborating with The Drive. I love it. Pav, how about this conversation with Tom Shimmer? I thought it was great. Um, like I mentioned earlier, Tom is very helpful. And I think true to the conversation that we just had, he's really there to offer feedback on on anything and help you reflect and work on stuff uh, wherever you need it. And I think that in, in having that little bit of a personal uh, conversation with Tom, uh, we've really learned a few lessons on some of our own practice just as teachers, if you want to go back and reflect, uh, you know, being there to answer those questions, whether they're related to the content or not, I think, I think that that is uh, meaningful and very helpful. Just gave you some insights on some of the buzzwords we use. So we want to use lots of feedback, yeah. do, but do we know what great feedback is? And, and one of those takeaways I had was whatever feedback you're going to give, there has to be an immediate amount of time in order to um, use that feedback. Yeah. And it has to be an appropriate amount of time. So if your feedback sort of drives towards maybe a 10-minute revision or a 10-minute task or a 10-minute conversation or something, then make sure you provide that time. But if it's extensive, then of course, um, 
you need to make sure that you're giving extensive time. Feedback is lost if you aren't willing to give up the time. That's right. Absolutely. And I see you giving me some feedback right now. Yes. That there's no background music being played (laughs) at the end of this episode. And so I love that feedback cue because it wasn't, it landed very well on me. Yes. And I got it right away. Yes. Oh, I I need time. I to push tell. the music. And there's the music being pushed. I was like, there we go. We forgot We forgot to play our swag bag music at the end of the, uh, yeah. but <laughs> you know last what? couple of minutes. It was so great that your feedback there was emotional. It was just a look <laughs> and a little hand gesture. And I picked up on it. It's also a good go. reminder that... Nonverbal cues. That's right. Sometimes that's all that feedback is. Feedback doesn't need to be this long journey that we spend an entire weekend writing up paragraphs and paragraphs. Uh, feedback can be immediate, it can be in the moment, and it can be, uh, it doesn't have to be long or lengthy. It can be short, one point, two points. And students pick up on those things and and it is helpful and is meaningful to them. The power of feedback, the power of co-creation, the understanding that there's a personalized emotionality that we connect with the type of assessments I want to bridge with each student in the learning space. A wonderful conversation on the staff room with Che and Pat. Thank you to Tom Shimmer for joining us for this sixth episode of the Summer Series. Please check out The Drive on Friday mornings at 9 a.m. We've only got a few more broadcasts to go until the summer is over and return to our regular time slot of 8.30 p.m. on Sunday evenings. All right, Pat. Thank you for that feedback on the music. And now Mm. give me the right amount of time to raise this music and take us out. Thank you, everyone.